Let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're continuing our study in this final chapter as we are talking about Christian warfare. And for the past seven messages, I've been talking about the conflict in which every Christian is engaged. From the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, you're involved in Christian warfare, and you will be involved in Christian warfare until you breathe the very last breath of this life. Uh, In this warfare, there are unseen forces. Some of those are for us, and some of them are against us. Uh, Satan has his legions of angels and his hordes of demons that fight against us. They inflict upon us personal pain and suffering. Satan engages us in a spiritual battle, in an emotional battle, a psychological battle. All the faculties of man are fair game for Satan. Then on the other hand, we have the angelic armies... And these are on our side. They're the elect holy angels of God. And they are under the commander of the Lord of hosts. Or as Martin Luther put it in his hymn, the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And these angels are watching over us, protecting us. God dispatches them when we need them. And I'm sure there are many times we're not even aware when God has his angels that are providing for us. So we've discussed all these different legions of angels on both sides of the conflict, both the good and the bad, and they are involved in this unseen spiritual warfare. Uh, This evening, though, I'd like to introduce to you to the next part of our study, and we're preparing ourselves here to begin uh, talking about the armor of God. And tonight, particularly, I'd like to talk about the wiles of the devil. Now, we've, we've mentioned some of those things throughout our study of, of Satan and the evil forces. But I want to talk uh, tonight particularly about the wiles of doubt. We have just one verse that I'd like to consider this evening. This is verse 11 of uh, Ephesians chapter 6. But let's stand, and we're going to read actually two verses. We'll read verses 10 and 11 in preparation for our study tonight. Verse number 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we just sang about that. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the strength that you give us through your word. We ask you, Lord, that you'd help us to learn something tonight. And may we be aware of this conflict that's going on all around us. Bless in our study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul writes there once again, and we've heard it many times, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, we've spent an extensive amount of time talking about the devil. Uh, We've talked about all of the deviant Uh, tricks that he uses. Uh, Tonight, though, I'd like to examine uh, Satan's attack a little bit more closely in a different way as we talk about a very specific area in which he works, and that's in the area of doubt. There's one overriding principle that we always have to remember about the devil, and that is the devil only has as much power as God allows him to have. His power is restricted in many ways, and it's more restricted towards those that are saved than those that are lost. Now, of course, we're going to be talking about Christian people, and Ephesians chapter 6 tells us what we need to do to be prepared to fight against the devil. But before we talk about that specifically, I want to take just a moment to talk to you about lost people. Uh, Lost people, I believe the Bible teaches us, are haters of God. I mean, I think, that's, I think that's evident from the Scriptures that anyone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, their natural propensity is to turn against God. They're haters of God. But even people that hate God, 
who don't even realize that Christ is their Savior, they have something to be thankful for. And that is that God is also protecting them. I mean, in spite of the rejection that they have against God, uh, God actually restricts the power of Satan as he works with lost people. Now, God doesn't allow Satan to do everything that he'd like to do. There's plenty of wickedness in the world. We're, we're, we're sure of that, about that. But we're not, we really don't know how much more evil that we would be capable of and how much the men of this world would be capable of if Satan's power was not restrained. One thing that we very, uh, very sincerely believe, we believe in the total depravity of man. And that means that every part of man is depraved. His will, his emotions, his psychological areas, everything about man is depraved. But what total depravity does not mean, it doesn't mean that we act out the very depths to the very worst that we could possibly do. Total depravity just means the extent of our depravity. It doesn't say that we're totally as sinful as we could possibly be. And the reason that we aren't is because God has decided to restrain Satan in certain areas so that a man is not able to act out the, the entire wickedness of his heart. And that's why that there is at least a little bit of marginal safety in you walking down the street during the daytime. Now, if God did not restrict the power of Satan, you wouldn't even be able to do that. People would not be able to even live in a society together if, if God didn't restrain the evil impulses that we have. So God has even blessed lost people in that respect, respect because he's restraining the power of the devil and he's also restraining the depravity of our hearts. And then the Bible teaches that the reason that God does this specifically is for his people. He restrains the evil of lost people for the benefit of his people. And that's because we have to live in the world too. And God wants to protect us from these, from these uh, evil things that people could do. But these lost people that receive the protection of the Lord because, because of uh, how God works with us, they're actually receiving a benefit from that. And so all of these people that say that they hate Christians and they hate Christian influence upon the society, they ought to be thankful because if not for us, they wouldn't even be able to survive in this world. But then the Bible also teaches us that one day God is going to remove the restraining power. Uh, one of these days, the, the power or the restrictions upon Satan are going to be relaxed. And that's when God comes and, or Jesus comes and he takes his people out of this world. And when he does that, all of that protection that God has been providing, even for lost people, will be removed. And that's what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. He said, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And that's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the word letteth there, it talks about the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus comes back, that restraining power is going to be removed. And then men will, in fact, act out to the depths of the depravity of their heart. Satan's power is released upon this world. And then folks will really find out just what a wonderful guy the devil is. They'll really know it then. But that's for lost people. And that's the tribulation. That, that's somewhere off in the future somewhere. But our subject tonight is how is Satan able to affect us now? And we're going to talk about the wiles of doubt because I think that that is one of the areas where Satan works very hard against Christian people. He tries to get us to doubt everything that there is about God. Now, remember that word wiles means trickeries. 
And that's what Satan does. He tries to trick you into things. Satan uh, tries to make things that are appear as they are not and things that are not to appear as if they are. And he works all the time to destroy the effectiveness and the happiness of God's people. And the way, one of the ways he does that is to cause us to doubt everything about our Christian lives. Well, tonight we're going to talk about two specific areas of doubt that the devil uses. And we need the armor of God to fight against the devil in these areas. Now, first, I'd like to talk to you about doubts about the experience of salvation. The experience of salvation. And by experience, I mean everything that happens in the Christian life. The ups and the downs that we go through, uh, the normal experiences that we have in life, the emotions that we have, the physical part of us, the mental part of it, all of those are areas where Satan comes to us and he tries to afflict us with doubt. Satan starts out in day number one of your Christian life trying to make you doubt God and doubt your salvation. Now, is there anybody here tonight who could testify that in all the time that you've been a Christian, you've never had a doubt of any kind? You've never wondered about what God is doing. You've never had a time when you thought, well, God's not being fair to me, or I'm going through some kind of trouble. I wonder if God's forgotten me. Is there anybody here that could raise their hand and say, all my Christian life, I've never had a doubt about God? Well, if you can raise your hand to that, I would say you are a very unusual Christian because all of us have doubts. A few weeks ago, I had someone in my office, and we were discussing the issue of doubt. The person was struggling with doubt. And I I confess that I've had my times of doubt. I've been a Christian for 46 years. I've studied the Bible from cover to cover. I've taught Sunday school classes, preached hundreds of messages. And I can tell you that I've had times of doubt. Now, my doubts might be different in in different areas than yours are, but I do confess that in times of weakness, the devil will begin to work on my mind. He'll mess with my mind, and he'll cause me to have doubts. And there are times when I've sat down and I've just wondered, is all of this real? I mean, what if I'm wrong? What if this faith that I have and the religion I have, what if it's just a, a product of my mind, and I believe all these things because it makes me feel a little bit better? What if God isn't real? And I've thought about things like that. Now, that's a moment of doubt. And thank the Lord that it stays just a moment. Because while the devil's messing with my mind, the Holy Spirit lives in my heart. And so he fights against that. So the Holy Spirit witnesses with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And so in times of doubt, what I do is I go back and I reflect upon all the experiences that I've had in my Christian life. I think about the time that I got saved. I think about the times when I've known that God has spoken to me, uh, times when I've seen God's hand and I've seen God's providence in my life. I've seen where God works. And so the reality of the experiences that I've been through, knowing God, that overcomes the psychology of Satan trying to put those doubts into my mind. Now, friends, if you have doubts sometime, uh, don't think that you're you're, you're not a Christian because you have doubt. I mean, just the fact that you have doubt... Because Satan works in that way. And you know, if, if, if Satan would come to Jesus Christ, and if he had the audacity to come to the very Son of God and say to him, if thou be the Son of God, if he tried to put doubt in the mind of the Savior, you can be sure that he's going to try to do it to you too. And he's very effective at that. You're not immune to the attacks of doubt. And Satan is so sure of that tactic, as I said, he used it on the eternal Son of God. And then as we look through the scriptures, we find that uh, the greatest uh, saints that we find in the Bible had times of doubt. I think about Elijah when he sat under that juniper tree. 
Talked about him last week. He just won that, that great victory on Mount Carmel, but then Jezebel threatened him, and Elijah had his times of doubt. He fled into the wilderness because of doubt. I think about Jonah. Uh, Jonah was thrown overboard and spent three days and three nights pickled in the uh, belly of a whale. Then uh, Jonah got thrown out on the dry ground, went to Nineveh and preached. Thousands of people got saved. But then where do you find Jonah at the end? He's sitting there crying because there was a gourd that grew up that gave him some uh, shade from the heat, and the gourd withered and died, and Jonah suffered with doubt. And then, of course, we come to the New Testament, and we think about another man uh, doubting Thomas. We gave him the first name, Doubt. Uh, he doubted about Christ. I mean, he walked with Christ. He talked with him. He heard him preach. He heard him talk about the resurrection. And yet when the disciples said, we've seen the risen Christ, Thomas was the one who said, oh, well, I'm not going to believe it unless I can touch the nail prints in his hand and put my hand into his side. But then Thomas was a child of God. And so later, it was Thomas who made the, one of the greatest confessions that we find in the New Testament when he said, my Lord and my God. So doubt is a part of the Christian life. When does doubt begin? Well, I think it begins at the very moment that you're saved. One of the first things that Satan says to you, are you really saved? Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. First, one we want to talk about is doubts about conversion. Most of us are very clear about the day that we got saved. Uh, I've known some people that were saved very early in their, in their lives, and and uh, after many years, they might not be too sure about all the details surrounding it, but, but they don't have any question in their heart or in their mind that they really are saved. I was saved when I was seven years old. Uh, I can tell you that I don't remember the message that was preached. I don't remember what the day was like. I don't know what the weather was like. I don't remember a whole lot about it at all. But I just remember this, that God spoke to me. And I was sitting there on the front row of the church. And when God spoke to me, I couldn't sit any longer. And so I got up and I came forward. Well, coming forward didn't save me. God saved me right there in the seat. But I wanted to make it known that I'd trusted Jesus as the Savior. Many of you in here tonight, you were saved as adults. And so the experience is very clear to you. But for many Christians, especially Christians that, that don't have a Christian family, Satan can work in the area of doubt. And this is where a person gets saved and... You know, they're on that great emotional high. I mean, they, nothing's better to them than to have got saved. Then they go home to a family that's not saved. Or they go to work, uh, back to work to the old people that are working there, and nothing happened to them. They didn't get saved. So there's no encouragement in that. And so they're in this great emotional high, and there's nobody around them to support them. And so what they do is they begin to fall into certain temptations. The family doesn't care what happened to them. They've had no experience. They're no encouragement. The people at work, they're no encouragement. And so this Christian then begins to fall back into the old lifestyle that he has. Now, he, he's not been saved very long. He doesn't have Christian experience. He doesn't know what's happening to him. And so he goes right back into the same old sins that he used to commit. And that's when the devil comes at that person hard. And he says to him, you weren't really saved. Nothing really happened to you. There, there's really no conversion experience because you're right back to the things that you used to do. And so Satan makes him think that, that there is no conversion, that it's not real. The difficulties of the Christian life and, and trying to live among the old family and the old friends, that bogs you down. And then Satan has a victory in the area of doubt. And unfortunately, that's where lots of Christian people will languish for years. 
I've known uh, children in bus ministries that got saved, and I know a lot of young people that got saved, and, and this is really a problem that was in their lives. It, they got saved. They had nobody at home, even their children. They came on buses or whatever. They get saved. They have nobody at home to support them. And so they fall away, at least in this sense. They, they don't show any fruit. They don't bear any, any fruit for Christ. And, and so their Christian lives don't amount to anything. And Satan works in their minds with doubt. Sometimes, and thank the Lord for this, many years later... Uh, some of those children do come back to church. Young people come back. God calls them back again, and they start, grow, start to grow, and they do become fruitful. Well, if anybody suffers in this area, doubts about your conversion, then you need to very clearly understand it's the devil who puts those thoughts into your mind. That's one of his wiles, and it's one of his biggest tricks. Then the second thing that we could talk about is, is doubts about troubles. Now, even if you aren't saved... Uh, There are times of troubles, but many people think that when they do get saved, that all the troubles are supposed to be over. And if troubles do come, that troubles are not going to last very long, or you can get out of them quickly, because God simply does not want to make your Christian life painful. And so they think there should be no trouble. One of the worst heresies that I think is is circling the globe right now is this preaching and teaching of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I've mentioned that uh, many times before, but maybe not so much as we talk about this particular area as we talk about assurance. But that whole doctrine of, of health, wealth, and prosperity is founded for only one reason, and that's to line the pockets of the people who teach it and, and the ministries that teach it. And if it wasn't for that, it wouldn't be around. So people uh, think that, well, in, in this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, <clears throat> that if, if my health isn't good, if I don't have the money that I ought to have, if I'm having financial difficulties, then there must be something wrong with me. I, I don't have enough faith. Uh, God's not blessing me. And maybe it's because I'm sin- I've sinned, or maybe it's because I'm not even a Christian at all. And so they think, if I'm a saved person, I ought not to have those problems. I ought to be healthy. I ought to be wealthy. I can't be a child of God. I have too much trouble in my life. Well, that's one of the wiles of the devil. That's nothing but a lie. So you see, the the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is a man-centered religion. It focuses all the attention on man and nothing on God. And that's the exact reason why Jesus told his disciples. He said, take no thought for tomorrow. He told them when he sent them out not to worry about physical provisions... So he said in Matthew, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Now you think about the health, wealth, and prosperity people. Now Jesus, what he's doing and what he's saying is get your mind off the material things. Don't worry about that. I'm going to take care of you. But what does health, wealth, and prosperity do? Well, if you listen to Joel Osteen, he's doing exactly the opposite because what he's getting, trying to do is to get you to focus on those very things. Change something about those things. Put all of your attention with that. And so they cause Christians to think about material things. And so if there's a lack of material things in your life, then that's evidence that there's a false, connect, uh, false conversion. And that's exactly what, uh, what uh, uh, Satan did with Job. Remember that? I mean, he lost his family. He lost his wealth. And then here come the miserable com- uh, comforters, even his wife. He said, Job, something's wrong here. Job, you have sinned. God has forsaken you. God's angry with you. And God is punishing you. Well, that's one of the wiles of the devil. 
Trouble does not mean that you're not a child of God. And so when you have health problems, when you have financial problems uh, that you have to go through, uh, don't think that's because you're not saved or don't think even because it's of sin in your life. It may have nothing at all to do with sin. And even if it is sin, you might want to rejoice in that because if God has brought trouble into your life, that means God is chastising you. And that's one of the best ways that you know that you're a Christian. God doesn't treat the people of the world that way. He treats his children that way in order to bring them back. So God may be testing you. God may be training you. It could be sin. It could be chastisement. But it does not mean because you have trouble in your life that you're not a child of God. So the experience of troubles can cause Christians to doubt. But there's no reason to doubt. None less than the Apostle Paul who wrote these very scriptures... Remember, he had a thorn in the flesh that God did not see fit to remove from him. So don't worry about that. Troubles, afflictions do not mean that you're not a Christian. Christian. Then the third thing we want to look at is, is doubts over failures. Now, maybe I've touched on that just a little bit, but the devil sows seeds of doubt in your mind when you fall into sin. Now, I don't want to give anybody hope and comfort tonight by saying, well, we all sin, so get over it. I mean, uh, we all sin. I I don't want you to think that we have an excuse to sin, because certainly we don't. We have no excuse to sin at all. We don't tend to worry too much about our salvation when we're into the habitual sins or the things that we call little sins. We're not too concerned about salvation then, because we have those little nagging things, and, and we comfort ourselves at least by thinking, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a thief. I might have these little besetting sins or things like that, but I've not fallen into the big sins. But what happens if you do fall into one of the big sins? Well, that's when Satan is there to accuse you. And he says, aha, I told you you're not a Christian. Christian people don't do those kinds of things. No Christian would ever be involved in that kind of sin. The Apostle John gives us some insight about this. He says in 1 John 5, 18, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. What's John talking about there? Is he saying that Christians never sin? Christians never get into any sin? Well, he's not talking here about committing one sin. John's talking about habitual sin. And he's telling us that it's not in the heart of a believer to continue in sin. Now, if you remember, we talked a little bit about this when I was preaching 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we talked about this man in Corinth who was involved in this ongoing sin. And the Apostle Paul said, If this man will not confess and he will not repent of this sin, then what you need to do is to remove that person from the membership. And what they were doing was treating that person as an unbeliever. And the reason why is because believers do not continue in sin without repenting of that sin. That is not a characteristic of a true believer. Well, finally, the man did repent, and that gave evidence that, uh, that he was a child of God. Now, even though he went into gross sin, he was in a terrible sin, he'd failed, and yet God forgave him of that. So if you failed, and if you've entered into a sin that... Uh, you might think it's one of the big ones. I mean, this is a horrible sin that I've done. Then don't think necessarily that you're not saved. If you repent of that sin, then you have every reason to believe that you are a child of God. And if you can go on and and feel no sorrow over it and you never repent of it, then that would be a reason to think that you're not. Now, we look at the life of David, for instance, and, and David would be an example to the contrary. 
uh, David was involved in some terrible sin. He lied, uh, he, he committed adultery and murder, but he was still a child of God. Now, none of us wants to get involved in those kinds of sins. Uh, we don't want to uh, uh, hurt the Lord and, and, and uh, be involved in those kinds of things. But because that you do get involved in a bad sin does not mean that you're not a child of God. And so when the devil comes to you, then you have to remind yourself, have I repented of that sin? Is there godly sorrow because of this sin that I've committed? And if there is, that's evidence that you're a child of God. So that's the first area. It's the devil working through the Christian experience, and you need to recognize the lie when Satan tries to put doubt in your mind. Then the second area, which is very closely related to this, is doubts about the assurance of salvation. Now, in one sense, we've been talking about assurance here, but we're going to get a little bit more particular and, and, and answer some, some questions that people ask about assurance. The first question that people ask about assurance, is it possible to have assurance? Is that even a possible thing? I mean, can we really know that we're saved? Can we really know that we're going to heaven? Can we be sure of our salvation? And when I speak about assurance, I understand me now. I'm not talking about eternal security because you can be a Baptist and you can firmly believe in eternal security. But the problem is, are you saved in the first place? That's where you've got to go to find out. And you know that, that if you uh, ever get assurance of salvation, then you'll know that you're saved forever. You just have to get the assurance and you have to know you're saved in the first place. But there are some who teach that you absolutely cannot have assurance. Now, I know of, of one person who wrote, and this was a Baptist fellow who wrote this, that if you believe in the doctrines of grace, that you can have no assurance of salvation. And he says the reason that you can't, because you're never sure that you're one of the elect of God. That's nothing but pure ignorance. I know that I'm the elect of God because I'm saved. The Spirit witnesses with my spirit that I'm a child of God. If I'm saved, I have to be one of the elect of God. I've never thought for a moment, and I don't know where this person came up with that idea, but I have never thought even for a moment about whether I'm the elect of God. I know that because I'm saved, so that doesn't mess with my assurance at all. But there are some who teach that you really can't know that you're saved. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that. They, they teach that it's utterly impossible for a person to have absolute assurance that they're saved. And that's the basis for the priesthood. It's the basis for the uh, intercession of the priesthood. It's the basis for purgatory, prayers to dead saints for indulgences and, and uh, praying people out of purgatory. The Roman Catholic Church says you can't be sure, and so you've got to keep up all of these things. You've got to do those things because you never know. You might make it, but you might not. You can't be sure about it. Does the Bible teach that a person can have assurance of salvation? Well, absolutely it's possible for us to know that. In fact, God wants you to know that because he knows the basis of happiness in your Christian life is centered in your assurance. Now, the Apostle John uh, wrote to people that were struggling with the very issue of assurance. They were in persecution. They were in turmoil. And they thought, with all these things that are happening to us and all the things that are going around us, on around us, it does not look like we could possibly be saved. Maybe, and there were some and then were even thinking, maybe we even missed the second coming of Christ. He's come and gone and we didn't even know about it. 
Well, John writes to them to give them assurance. And he says in 1 John chapter 5, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, if you take time to, to read that fifth chapter of 1 John, and John keeps saying, we know, we know, we know. Six times he says, we know this. And so definitely the word of God teaches us we can have assurance of our salvation. Well, another question that people ask once they get saved and things start to go a little bit awry and things go wrong, the next thing they ask is, what happened to the feeling? Where's that feeling that I had about being saved? I don't feel saved anymore. I used to like to read the Bible. I used to like to pray. I was riding that emotional high. What happened to the feeling that I've had? If you ever come across somebody who who hasn't had ups and downs in their Christian life, then then I'd seriously doubt their salvation. We all have that. But what the devil likes to do, he likes to deal in the area of emotions. And what he wants to do is to move your thinking out of the area of the relationship that you have with God and to get you to concentrate on the emotional experience of knowing God. Now, one of the things that you find out very quickly in charismatic churches is they don't care very much about doctrine. They strive for the emotional highs, but leave the doctrine alone. We really don't need that. We don't need the Word of God for these things. And so in charismatic churches, you'll hear a lot of... You won't hear any expositions, I should say. Uh, You won't hear expositions of justification by faith. You'll hear a lot about faith, but it's in the area of money. It's in the area of, of Christian living. But the justifying aspects of faith, you're not going to hear about that. They don't pay attention to it. And the reason that they don't teach much doctrine is it takes too much time away from this emotional aspect of the gifts of the Spirit. And that's where they spend their time. Now, let me go back here for just a minute to Joel Osteen. I like to pick on him. He's a good target for me. But I heard an interview that he had on television, and this was about this new book that he'd written, Become a Better You. The interviewer was sitting there with him, and he picked up Joel Osteen's book, and and he had a piece of paper in there marking his spot. He picked it up, and he began to read from Joel Osteen's book. And here's what he, he read. To become a better you, you must be positive towards yourself, develop better relationships, embrace the place where you are. Then the interviewer stopped there, and you know what he said? He said, not one mention of God in that. Not one mention of Jesus Christ in that. Now, this man, he said, this is how you become a better you. But he doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention relationship with Jesus Christ. The interviewer, I don't know if he's saved or not, but he had enough sense to stop him. He pegged Joel Osteen right there. He's not interested in doctrine. He's interested in the feeling. How do you feel about yourself? Now, listen to another part of the interview. Osteen says this, and this is a direct quote. Well, I think that most people already know what they're doing, doing wrong. And for me to get in here and just beat them down and talk down to them, I just don't think that inspires anybody to rise higher. But I want to motivate. I want to motivate every person to leave here to be a better father, a better husband, to break addictions, to come up higher in their walk with the Lord. Then the interviewer stopped him and he said, I mean, is that being a pastor or is that being Dr. Phil or Oprah? And then Osteen replied, no, I think we use God's word. 
I think the principles that you hear Dr. Phil and some of these others talk about many times are right out of the Bible. Folks, if you go to Dr. Phil and you go to Oprah and Joel Osteen to find out what the Bible says, you pick the wrong spot. These people don't know about the Bible. Our relationship with Christ is not built on our feelings. It's not built upon whether you can think positively about yourself or make yourself a better you. It's not built on anything like that. In fact, if your assurance is built on the fact that you can make a better you, you're going to fail. You can't do it. And you know why? Because Jesus Christ himself doesn't even try to make a better you. He's not interested in a better you. He's interested in a new creature. He's interested in somebody who's nothing like you at all. Jesus wants to change you. You have to have a new birth. You've got to have a relationship with him. And so the Holy Spirit comes and he makes you something completely different from what you are. He's not trying to make a better you. Whatever you feel about yourself does not make a difference. It's the relationship that you have with Christ. And so when you feel down about this and you think, well, I don't feel like a Christian today. Don't let that doubt come into your mind. Don't think I can't be a Christian because I don't feel like a Christian. And that's because feelings will deceive you. And that's where Satan works with doubt. It's the relationship that you have with Christ that counts. And that's what you go to. You don't go to the feelings that you have. Now, here's the thing about it, folks. I mean, you can feel good about yourself all the way to hell. It's not going to change anything. The wiles of the devil come in the area of emotions. And so you have to watch out for that. Now, here's the third thing, and we'll close with this one tonight. Christians ask this this question. Have I committed... The unpardonable sin. Now, if you've asked that question, don't feel like you're alone because it comes up a lot of times. I'm not going to give an exposition of the unpardonable sin tonight. That's not my purpose. But there are people that fall into sin, something goes wrong in their life, and they ask a question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Well, the devil comes to them with this attack of doubt, and he makes the Christian feel bad about this. He, uh, the Christian's into a depression, and he causes him to think, well, have I committed an unpardonable sin? And so this person thinks, well, I can't get out of this thing that I'm doing. I repent of my sin, and then I go back and do that again. I tell God that I'm sorry, then I go back to that sin again. So I keep struggling, I keep fighting, it goes on and on and on. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Well, Jesus talks about this sin in Matthew chapter 12. He says, Wherefore, say, say I unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, sometime or another, we might get into a... a discussion about this, uh, whether this particular sin can even be committed today. But let me at least say this, that this sin is to ridicule the Holy Spirit. It's to claim that the work that Christ does has really been done under the power of Satan. It's a proud and arrogant denial of the power of the Son of God. What's a characteristic of people who fall into this sin? What would be a characteristic of this person? Well, Jesus shows us here, I think, this kind of person is someone who doesn't care at all about whether they've committed this sin. They never even ask the question. They would never ask a question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Because they don't care. This is arrogant, open denial of the power of the Son of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So they're not going to ask, have I committed the unpardonable sin? 
So if a Christian comes to me and asks me the question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? No. You ask me the question. Nobody who's committed is even going to ask the question because they don't care whether they've committed or not. And so you don't have to worry about committing the unpardonable sin. If it's on your mind, if you're thinking about that and you're wondering, well, have I sinned too much? Have I gone too far? Have I committed something that God is not going to forgive for? The very fact that you ask the question is your answer. No, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Now, we're going to stop with that. And this is preparation for putting on the armor of God. And you've got to do this because the devil is working in every phase of your life. In your health, your finances, your emotions, your psyche, every part of your being is, is fair game for the devil. And so you need God's armor of protection over all of you. Now, here's one final question, and we'll close the message tonight. Do you recognize when your love and your faith are weak? If you know this, if you recognize it, my love is deficient, my faith is weak, I have a desire to serve Christ, God, just show me how I can serve you better. If you are concerned about that, then you're on your way to fighting the attacks of the devil. You're on your way to getting rid of doubt in your heart and in your life. So you're a child of God. What you need to know now is how to put on that armor of God. So you might be caught in the wilds of doubt. I hope that you're not tonight. But remember this. Don't stay in doubt. That, that's Satan. It's one of his tricks. And the way you fight it off is to put on the whole armor of God. And we'll be talking about that for the next few weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight and for the time we spent together. Lord, I just pray there was anybody here tonight who, who has times of doubt and they wonder, are they saved? And maybe there's troubles in their lives. Maybe there's all kinds of things going on. Lord, anybody who's interested in this and, and knows that their affections for you, their love for you, their work for you is deficient and they recognize that and they ask for help with it, that's a sign that they're a child of God. I ask you, Lord, to encourage our people tonight. Help us to always look to you. And may we be equipped with the whole armor of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.